Vibhanga Sutta, uh, the Sutta of the Exposition of the Elements, which is number 140 in the Middle Length Discourses, and can very easily be found by looking up in Sutta Central, the now considered the standard resource for online Dhamma. One idea that I have had for some time is that many of the suttas which are about meditation can actually be taken as an extended guided meditation or a theme that can be used as the format and the structure for a meditation retreat. So within this particular sutta, the Blessed One refers to the six great six elements and then uh, six bases of sense contact, at 18 kinds of mental exploration, and four I'll call them for determinations. Uh, So there you have it. You could say that the six elements are the way of understanding the body or understanding form, uh, because uh, we could analyze form into the elements. And then the uh, six kinds of uh, basis for sense contact are in the Vedana, the feeling that arises from that. Uh, That's an aspect of mentality, so um, getting into the mental aspects, and then uh, the, uh, the four uh, determinations, one could say that that's uh, the Dhamma, so it's, it's showing a very typical arc of, uh, that you would, would follow in a meditation program of starting to become very stabilized in mindful contemplation of the body, moving into the mindful, developing mindful awareness of the more subtle aspects of uh, mentality, uh, being able to recognize the states of mind and so forth. And then uh, finally, using that awareness of the body-mind and bringing to bear on it a lens or a way of looking at our experience in terms of the Dhamma, in terms of the teachings of the Blessed One, uh, or in terms of the liberating uh, uh, truth. Uh, but today I, I wanted to uh, uh, bring out the uh, frame story around this particular sutta. Uh, it's one of the, to me, one of the most uh, touching stories to be found anywhere in, in the, in the uh, teachings of Theravada Buddhism. In this case, um, the Blessed One was uh, wandering by himself in Rajagaha. He didn't have any other monastic or attendant with him, not even Ananda. And this is very unusual. It is possible that that's a realistic element, and saying that although we think of the Blessed One as uh, 
being a great mighty teacher who was continuously surrounded by hundreds of, of bhikkhus and, and uh, followers that it's possible that earlier in his career that when he wandered into new places that he would have just appeared as a simple monk uh, uh, without um, the kind of uh, glorious um, appearance. Uh, or it could be that uh, it's more um, like an archetype element or like a mythology kind of element. That here is this um, a glorious human being who normally has got such a, a powerful um, bearing and uh, a beauty of appearance that um, discerning people are struck and inspired merely by seeing the Buddha even before they speak to him. But in this case, um, the Buddha was not um, giving that appearance and merely seeming to be um, uh, a regular monk. Uh, He he went to um, uh, Rajabaha and went to the potter's shed, uh, which would have been in India a place in any town or any village where uh, a wandering a person could find a place to uh, get shelter from the elements to sleep for the night. So that would be very normal, and even I think today in India one can go in rural areas from village to village as a, a wandering um, a religious mendicant and, and be able to receive shelter. Uh, so, so he went uh, to the potter's shed and asked... Uh, for permission to uh, stay there for the night. And the potter said, well, there's already another homeless uh, recluse staying in the shed, and uh, you may see if, if it's okay with him if you also go in there. Uh, so the, the Buddha went in, and uh, the person inside uh, was called Pukusati, uh, this would be a, a young um, a person who would have been uh, dressed in the brown robes of a, of a um, religious uh, uh, mendicant, uh, but not wearing the distinctive pattern of the Buddhists, of the followers of Gautama. Uh, and uh, Pukasati said, well, he addressed uh, the Buddha as um, a venerable, uh, which was not a term of respect one would give to a great master, but more like a collegial type of term that you would use for another uh, colleague in the holy life. And uh, he said, well, venerable, there's plenty of room that, uh, to stay here. And uh, so they stayed up through the night uh, practicing meditation. After meditating together, the Buddha thought to himself, well, this monk uh, seems to know how to practice. Let me uh, see see about teaching him. And so he asked uh, Pukasati, uh, uh, who is your teacher? 
and Pupasati said, um, there is this enlightened one, uh, Gotama, noble, uh, worthy teacher of gods and humans, uh, uh, perfect in uh, knowledge and um, in uh, character. And uh, that's the one I follow. But Pupasati didn't know that he was speaking to the Buddha. And then uh, the Buddha said, well, where is uh, this uh, Gautama staying? Where is this Buddha staying? And Pukhisati um, said, oh, he is staying in Savati. And he asked, well, have you ever met uh, your teacher? And Pukhisati said, no, I haven't met him, but I'm going to find him. So now, there's a further background given in the commentary about uh, Pukhisati and his character. Uh, Pukasati was a king in uh, the area called Ganhara, which is in northwest, I guess what would now be in uh, Pakistan or the border areas of, of uh, northwest India and Pakistan. And uh, Ganhara is not one of the areas that is uh, mentioned very much during the Buddha's lifetime. But then uh, later, certainly by the time of Asoka or the time of um, Nagasena, in the uh, uh, there's a famous book called uh, uh, the Melinda's Questions, uh, where uh, Nagasena is giving teachings to a Greek king. Uh, so this would be at a time when uh, there was commerce as far as between the India and and Greece. Or India and the and the uh, Greek and the and the uh, Europeans, and by that time Gandhara had become a very important center of the Dharma. Even we know that in the development of our monastic code, that uh, some of the uh, Vinaya rules were developed and established in the Gandhara region the um, uh, Dharmagupta, the type of Vina that's followed in uh, Mahayana Buddhism in China and so forth, uh, can be traced back to the Gandhara region. And one of the uh, peculiarities of that Vinaya is that it, it has a whole set of rules about how to behave oneself around a stupas or around a um, relics, which do not exist in our early uh, Pali canon. That's not because the Theravada Buddhists don't, ref- don't take an interest in relics and are not respectful of uh, the stupas, uh, but rather because those practices were so well established and so deeply embedded in the culture of the area of India where Buddhism started. And as well, I can tell you for sure in Sri Lanka, they definitely know how to behave around the stupas. It's a very big spiritual practice. Um, so they didn't need to have rules explaining what to do around a stupa. But perhaps in Gandhara, this was like a, um, the uh, carrying the relics from the homeland out to the remote areas was part of the evangelizing of the Dhamma, part of how the Dhamma got spread out to these other areas and established instead of just being 
bound to its its homeland. Buddhism became a world religion. So to be a world religion, it has to travel. And besides the ideas or the books, um, the monks would uh, carry uh, relics. And then the, the relics and the veneration of relics would become uh, the basis for uh, temples and for Buddhism to establish its places around the world. So uh, this uh, uh, spreading uh, Gandhara then was a, an area where of sort of missionizing of early Buddhism. In that way, uh, we might take this uh, legend of Pukasati to be a legend about the transmission of the Dhamma. So uh, Pukasati was a king, and uh, there were uh, merchants who were traveling. Uh, so he came to uh, hear about uh, Bimbisara as being a great king in the southern um, areas, the homeland, the central area of, of, uh, of the Dhamma. And uh, so he sent a gift of some uh, rugs, some very precious uh, rugs uh, to King Bimbisara as a token of friendship. And King Bimbisara was thinking what he could send back as a return gift that would be very precious. And he thought, well, we have this Dhamma, we have the teachings of, of the Buddha. Uh, so he had the Anapanasati Sutta engraved on a gold plate and sent this engraving of the Anapanasati Sutta up to Gandhara to uh, uh, King uh, Pukasati. And uh, King Pukasati must have had a very good karma because he was able to immediately uh, take a very deep impression from this teaching of the Anapanasati Sutta, the Sutta on the Breath Meditation. And he uh, learned that Sutta and practiced that meditation and obtained uh, jhana, obtained uh, uh, concentration and became uh, convinced that he wanted to uh, give up his householder life and, and become a disciple. Uh, so he uh, uh, abandoned um, his uh, reign over that country and uh, uh, turned everything over and uh, put on the clothing of a, of a mendicant and then wandered back uh, searching for the Buddha. So then you have this secular king who's just appearing like a humble recluse sitting on a bed of straw in the potter's shed. And then you have the wheel-turning, enlightened, uh, the perfectly enlightened Buddha who's bringing the uh, revival of the truth into the world, who's got the appearance of being an ordinary monk. And you have these two beings who are having this very ordinary, humble, simple appearance, uh, not uh, revealing their, their um, nobility. And then uh, as the uh, uh, sutta goes on, uh, the Buddha gives the teachings that we'll be talking about through the coming week. We can see that uh, the uh, uh, gradually uh, Pukasati will realize who he's speaking to because he's able to recognize the profound 
uh, significance and the uh, truth value of the teachings that the Buddha is giving. And then at the end he um, goes down and uh, bows to the uh, Buddha and asks to be uh, forgiven for addressing him in such a casual way at the beginning and for not recognizing him at the beginning and uh, requests to become his disciple. At the end of the sutta, the Buddha uh, does speak to Pukasati in kind of a stern way and says, yes, indeed, uh, you were foolish in not being able to recognize me at the beginning. Uh, and that the Tagata does not ordain anybody who doesn't have the proper robe and an alms bowl. Uh, so you'll have to get those things before you can get the ordination. And then Pukasati goes out um, to get his robe and his alms bowl. And while he's out, he is uh, gored by a cow and killed. Uh, but the uh, Buddha says that uh, uh, he did obtain um, the uh, noble enlightenment, the awakening. What I take from this story is an idea that our teacher could be right here in the room and we don't recognize him or we don't recognize her. Or we could say that the situation, although it's a very ordinary, commonplace situation, that the liberating teaching, that inspiration which is going to be the key to enable us to wake up, could be happening right there in an ordinary, common situation. So it doesn't have to be in a very uh, glorious uh, uh, sacred uh, temple or on a beautiful mountaintop or in, a, in the uh, presence of large groups of Buddhist monastics or in the presence of uh, teachers who are uh, well-known and famous. Um, it could even be that uh, somebody who's, who's not, um, not even enlightened uh, themselves, that they might show you something that gives the occasion for waking up. When I was uh, many, many, many years ago, when I was in a worse uh, situation in, in my life, I got referred to uh, 12-step programs. And I you know, went to a, a meeting and uh, somebody was there. And um, this person was actually psychotic, but they... Uh, mentioned one of the slogans of the 12-step programs. And I, of course, I didn't—I never heard any of the slogans before because I was a newbie. And that that slogan was what, you know, kind of like made it possible for me to get from step A to step B in the spiritual path that I was, that I was doing at that time. And so, you know, even somebody who was really disabled was able to give something precious. So that's the, that's the uh, uh, primary um, thing that I, it's, it's, a, it's a very fundamental attitude that, that uh, we don't look for something that the super mundane teaching is going to be something that's like up in the sky or somewhere else. 
or any place away from here, but instead that the, the place where the action is, where it happens, where we look up, it's exactly right here, exactly right now, exactly in confronting the, the most ordinary things, and it's just how we see them, that we can see our one side of the coin, we can see our reality which is, with the mind, which is affected by delusion, uh, craving, and um, aversion, and simply be like encountering the world in a secular way, or else we can flip the coin over and see exactly the same thing from a different perspective, which is uh, free from delusion, or which has seen things with with an insight into the, the true character of, of, of that reality, or seeing it in a way which is not um, polluted by clinging to identity or clinging to any other uh, type of, uh, of uh, deluded or reflective um, impulses. And so there's a way in which uh, the teaching that comes to us through a story can be probably more powerful and more effective than a story that, or a teaching that comes to us through a, a discursive explanation. How we learn things at the more emotional or intuitive level, those uh, learnings are happening almost like uh, subconsciously. It's not that we have a list of concepts and we've memorized the list and looked up the meaning of the concepts and thought about the meaning of the concepts and, you know, gradually made those concepts become habitual to us. Instead, we would have seen something in nature that has a pattern and we recognize the pattern. It's a much more immediate and direct kind of learning. Uh, you could say, let's say if you take a, a concept like uh, justice, somebody who's uh, a little child might have an experience of noticing that uh, adults are behaving in a way which is fair. And so then that child will you know, like get imprinted with a pattern. This is what fairness looks like. This is what fairness feels like. And so I think uh, kind of in the same way that the uh, truth that comes to us by way of the story can be imprinted in a way which is very direct and therefore very effective. So in that framing story, the idea is that uh, uh, everything is teaching us. The teacher we're seeking is already right in front of us. Although the Buddha mentions the ideas of the sutta, in one sequence he, he mentions them in order in terms of the elements the uh, six sense bases and the 18 kinds of mental explorations and then the, the four determinations. Uh, but then, after giving the outline of the sutta, the first thing that he talks about is the six senses and the 18 kinds of mental exploration. So I might take a minute now, or 10 minutes, to explain what this is and to suggest that as a possible uh, theme to work with during the next uh, day or the next couple of days of meditation for those who are taking this whole week as a retreat. So there is the eye faculty and the visual object, the eye consciousness, which is the mental uh, capacity to take in a visual experience and the the uh, meeting of those three is called the contact. And uh, uh, dependent on that contact arises uh, feeling. 
All of this is happening uh, before the uh, point of uh, perception where our mental construct is, uh, arises in the mind that recognizes uh, the uh, visual object as being what it is, a person, a kind of a person, or a kind of a thing, or a kind of a, an object, or a kind of a color, and, uh, and thinks of, of uh, naming it. So uh, when somebody is, uh, I might say that they heard, heard a, uh, a robin, and they were uh, listening to a robin, well, already, by the time that they said it was a robin, they've gone beyond the direct experience and into the uh, conceptual area of, of having a, a mental uh, uh, construct, which is this naming of the robin. And so then the, the response they're having is, in, in large part, a response to the mental construct. But before that, there's this, uh, this in the contact. Then, uh, likewise for the five physical senses and for the mind. And then uh, he says, based on a visual, the, the, the seeing faculty, uh, the eye faculty and the visual object, there's a mental exploration of, object, of objects which are conducive to uh, joy, objects that are conducive to equanimity and objects uh, to joy, to grief, and to equanimity. So for, as a result of the contact and the, the Vedana, there's immediately this thing that's uh, translated as mental exploration. Uh, it's um, upavichara. Uh, vichara is the word for a sustained thought. It's something that we uh, develop in, in meditation to be able to uh, encounter the object of our meditation practice, whether it be watching the breath or um, watching the, the, uh, the sign of concentration or uh, focusing on the thought of loving kindness to make a connection with the object and then to stay with that object. That's the, the kind of a vichara, a sustained thought that we're developing in meditation. But this, when it said upa vichara, upa means going towards something or the being staying near something, and it could be translated as a, a mano upavichara can be translated as a mental preoccupation. So, because of that pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling, the mind can be compelled to go out and grasp onto the object in, in terms of this will be by the sentence in terms of some kind of perception, and then the mind is attracted to stay on this, this uh, mental preoccupation. So when the mind has then has left the realm of direct experience and gone into a realm of, it's a thought realm, of, of being uh, preoccupied with these, these different objects. Uh, this is something that when I have gone uh, for a meditation instruction that's based on the Satipatthana or that's based on mindfulness, Usually the encouragement is to uh, restrain the mind from getting uh, caught up or stuck on thinking about objects at that conceptual level, but to uh, try to simply keep the attention focused back at the gateway. So one would be uh, uh, trying to be aware of hearing, hearing, and not 
be aware of Robin Robin. So you're not thinking about the object, but instead just pulling the attention back to that, that earlier moment where the, the, the sense contact is happening. But in this, this uh, part of the sutta, in a certain way, it's like the Buddha is pointing out that this is the problem. The way the mind goes out and gets caught up, uh, preoccupied uh, with objects as a result of sense contact. But in another way, I feel that we could take this sutta as permission to go ahead and explore and try to see what's really happening when the mind goes out and grasps onto these objects. Especially when we're in the special environment of a, a retreat with long hours of sitting and walking meditation and very few duties. It's not it may be uh, possible to soften and reduce the tendency of the mind to be grasping on objects. But when we are out in the world involved with doing things, then the mind can be grasping on these concepts in a very sustained way, a kind of a preoccupation. So um, the person who's um, the kitchen manager in a retreat, maybe if they have a big entry full of food and they have to plan how to get the meals for several days out of the pantry full of food, if they allow it, they might be thinking and thinking and thinking for many hours about what's going to be on the menu and what sequence of what has to happen to prepare it. Or if somebody is uh, trying to um, develop a business and they have to have a business plan and think about even much more complicated, many, many factors to uh, keep in mind and they may have to uh, sustain their uh, concept about their business plan and all the elements that go into the business plan, and they may have to do that for 5, 10, 15 years to end the process of building up a business. Or if, if someone is, let's say, uh, culturally, culturally, if you're a people, and if your uh, nation is uh, subjected to uh, a genocide or some kind of a terrible uh, tragedy, it could be that that object and the, the grief over that experience becomes so strongly imprinted in the culture that not only the individuals are mentally going out again and again to latch on to the object of the things that were done to them and then they, they share about this socially and it becomes a, something that becomes a, an object of a discussion and being affirmed and ratified by the whole society and then it can be memorialized, they can have a special holiday to um, recall and remember and, and recollect that this um, tragic event. And then uh, through these, through these um, uh, memorials, then the uh, emotional impact, the, the uh, painful uh, feeling about what was done to our nation can be passed along from gener- generation to generation. And you could have people 150 years later starting a whole new war just because of the way there was this mano upavichara, this uh, mental exploration that went out and grasped onto a certain idea or a certain concept and then kept a hold of it and didn't uh, put it down but kept on uh, reviving it and keeping that, that concept alive over a, a period of generations of, of people. So in a certain way, it's a, uh, there's a value in, in another part of meditation to 
just let go of doing that all together and simply to try to stay with uh, their experience. Uh, but then also, I think it's uh, in terms of uh, understanding the problem, a uh, really good practice to try to notice as clearly as possible what really happened when the mind grabbed onto an idea so that based on the sense contact, some idea arose and the mind grabbed onto it and is uh, staying with that idea in a sustained kind of a way. Uh, what's really happening there? Is it sometimes true that that this mental process uh, could be uh, colored by unskillful or uh, afflictive characteristics like being uh, strongly colored by anger or, or greed or uh, sensuality or anxiety or uh, wish to escape from reality or something like that. Or it could be that that the mind is reaching out and that the uh, mental, the other concomitants of, of that experience are not unwholesome, that the mind is thinking about an idea in a sustained way with the thought of loving kindness, the thought of compassion, or the thought of, of uh, investigation, the thought of uh, curiosity, the thought of uh, desire to know the truth. And so so that's there's a danger, but there's also the possibility of um, this kind of conceptual thinking happening in a, in a clean way. And it's also uh, possible to notice that when the sense contact is neutral, the way that the mind grasps onto those objects could be either very unclear, weak, dull, tainted by ignorance and dullness, so that neutrality can be accompanied by dullness, which is an unskillful quality, or the mind can explore neutral objects in a way which has got a lot of clarity and brightness still. And in that case, we notice a sense of uh, freedom and uh, tranquility, and that um, that kind of exploration seems to be rather safe, and that actually it's possible through our mental cultivation to expand the amount of territory that's in that. As we develop more equanimity, we have more and more ability to have a, a clarity and um, freedom in connection to the the objects that we're that we're exploring and seeing. So, so then one is able to have perhaps sustained thought without any sense of obsession or compulsion or preoccupation or anything that's that uh, uh, deters clear seeing. Uh, so that would be the uh, the first um, object of meditation, or the, the set of meditations would be to try to notice the uh, sense, sense, sensory impacts, including um, the mental sensory impacts that may arise from memories and so forth. And then noticing the mental exploration or the mental uh, preoccupation that can arise based on sensory impact. And try to, if we um, 
if you're able to track it back, instead of getting lost in in thought, to track it back to what sense gate was involved that uh, got that started this that started this exploration. So that would be my uh, suggestion for tonight, and I thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.